One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Here's a cool fact: a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact. You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hello, I'm Anoush. And I'm John. And this week we're talking about... The shortcomings of the Brexit transition deal and some fish. We hear from Francisco Cantu, a former US Border Patrol agent who's written a book called The Line Becomes a River. And you ask us, why is it the convention not to name politicians spokespeople? Thank you for joining me, John. Listeners may not know, but Stephen Bush is away today because it's his birthday, so I expect he's probably watching reruns of old elections but i don't know how he celebrates it's a big birthday i believe too it's his 35th i think it's not his 35th i can't believe you come on and the first thing you do is slander our usual host i'm very excited to be here this is like this is like a promotion so (laughs) okay well i hope it, it lives up to your expectations but we thought that we'd talk a little bit about brexit this week yeah, because it's John's favourite subject, and you know he loves the will of the people. So that's why I'm he's all here. about, I'm all about referenda, really. Um, so. <laughs> so we've seen um, fish this morning. That's been the the word of the day. Yep, there are some there are some pe- definitely sane and normal leave people um, sailing up the Thames, throwing fish at each other, which is uh, a, a remarkably normal thing to do that is in no way ridiculous yeah i mean it really makes you respect their um values as politicians um and, and basically i think mean, I mean, they've got a bloody good point actually. <laughs> they've got a bloody good point so so what they what, what we've seen is some euro skeptics like nigel farage sort of flinging fish into the river thames outside parliament and this is part of a protest they're on a boat as well by the way so just to add that to this horrifying image in yeah they're mind. not in the water throwing yeah, yeah. fish at each other <laughs> So the protest is because they feel like fishermen have been betrayed by the transition deal signed by David Davis earlier this week, because basically the EU will still be in control of our fishing during the transition transition period. Um, and so they decided that the best way to draw attention to this in the most measured manner that they could was to hire a boat that they weren't allowed to dock anywhere. And for their ringleader, Jacob Rees-Mogg, not even able to board it because it wasn't able to dock at embankment where he was waiting which is just a magnificent metaphor for the whole the whole brexit process really isn't it like <laughs> they just didn't think it through um but you know i kind of okay so i'm i'm not a, i'm not a fishing expert i'm not a, or, or a fish bird as i think they're known but i kind of it feels to me like this is actually one of those areas where there is a very very strong case for international cooperation because fish are not known for their respect of, of national borders. 
And it is one of those areas <laughs> where, like, you know, if, if every nation on Earth just did all the fishing it wanted, we would be depleting the fish stocks pretty rapidly. So you do kind of need some kind of internationally agreed system, right? Yeah. So I, I, this is where my, my knowledge stops, and I have no idea. Maybe maybe the European Union has been doing this very, very badly. That's that's not something I can rule out. But the idea that Britain Britain's fishermen should just be able to, like, fish as much as they want, where they want, feels kind of, you know, foolhardy to me. I have to admit similarly to you that I don't have an expertise uh, in in fisheries. But I did, before the election, I did go and do a feature in St. Ives, which is um, a town in Cornwall, which uh, fishing is one of its biggest industries. And I interviewed some fishermen there. And the, and the, the European, the European Union's, policy towards our fish our fisheries um is loathed by by fishermen so i do people in the fishing industry so i do understand why this has become such a hot topic and why why it's sort of touched a nerve among eurosceptics did you get a sense from talking to those guys as to the nature of their their disagreement with it like what's what's the problem been they felt like they'd lost money out of it because they couldn't fish how they wanted so basically their jobs were so restricted by these eu rules that they couldn't do they couldn't do the fishing that they wanted. They'd have to restrict their activities and therefore they were getting less money for the fish that they were catching. But what was interesting was that even though most of them I'd spoken to had voted Brexit, as Cornwall did, 50% of Cornwall voted Brexit, even though it, it's, a, it's a net recipient of Brussels money. They did say it doesn't really matter who wins this election because we don't seem to be winning from any type of government anyway. So I don't know if the Brexiteers are really providing them with a solution, which which the fish protest today is a perfect symbol. So having been down there and, and, and met those guys, did you... Do you get the impression that they would be impressed by the by the fish protests? Was this the kind of thing that would send the signal they want? I can't speak on behalf of my interviewees, but I do think that it's the type of thing that they'd be horrified by because, you know, this image of a politician in a suit throwing fish into into the Thames because he wants to get pictures of himself in the Daily Mail is just you know, everything that people don't really like about politicians. It's it's a publicity stunt. It's kind of um, a hollow sort of press courting um, exercise. And yeah, it's a, it's a hollow gesture. And also it went wrong, much like, <laughs> much yes. like, much like Brexit. <laughs> no, the, the whole thing feels like a, a stunt to appeal to. I mean, like we've been sort of mocking it all morning. Yeah. But it, it feels like a, it's not aimed at us. No. It's a stunt aimed at, you know, the mail and the express and the telegraph where presumably... Even I don't know whether the readers would be impressed by this, but like they know they're going to get positive write-ups for it there because it's going to be like you know, no, Farage and Reese Moggs fighting for for British fishermen and so on. You know, people are going to write that up surprisingly straight, given the nature of the exercise. Yeah, I think so. And also, the pictures really lend itself to to a good story, a sort of positive or a funny, charming story. And people do have that memory of of Britain as a sort of naval power that I think that would appeal to too. And we shouldn't. Yeah, uh, you're right. We should look at it from the point of view of the people who's who it's for, people who are reading the papers that it's going to be covered in. But but this boat-type protest has been used so many times. We, this is the third Brexit boat protest, and they never seem to work that well. Well, but presumably, I mean, I, I guess it depends what what they're trying to get out of it. I mm. mean, they always get a lot of attention. Yeah, they do. Uh, and that's probably like 80% of what they're after is just, you know, like, look at me, look at me. So. Yeah. But they're not providing any answers, which I think Again, is the problem for like the fishermen Brexit, in areas yeah. where they're where they're suffering from 
whatever policy. Should we talk about the transition deal? Yeah, I suppose we have to. I think it's interesting. The transition deal was signed uh, earlier this week on Monday and it was in the draft withdrawal agreement, which is now colour coded. So you've got green for things that they've agreed on. Then you've got a sort of orange. Is it orange? It's yellow. Yellow. Yellow for things. We could call it amber. Yeah, amber. So things they kind of broadly agree the theme on but they haven't decided how they're going to go ahead with it and then and then hilariously white for things that they they haven't got an agreement on yet which is which i think is the equivalent of teachers um, marking children students um work in green pens so that they don't feel bad about themselves as sort of like avoiding the red colour. Yeah, presumably they just didn't want to like give the impression that the red thing is there's just nothing happening. Yeah. No one has no one's got a clue what we're doing about this whole island thing. Yeah. They, yeah. Let's, let's not put put red in there. Yeah. Um so what did you think of the transition deal that they came up with? It feels like things are actually inching forward, I think. Like there are there are ways in which it felt more positive than I was I was expecting in some ways. But the thing I found interesting about it is they've kind of they've, they've agreed transition will end uh, December thirty first, twenty twenty, which is twenty one months after after Brexit happens. I don't think anybody imagines that we're actually going to have everything sorted by the end of twenty twenty. Everyone knows we're going to need a longer transition than that. But as I understand it, there is no mechanism in that agreement for extending transition. It's just kind of they've fudged it slightly. They just kind of assume, well, they'll probably find a way when push comes to shove, because the EU tends to do that. But it is slightly nerve wracking that we might get to you know, November 2020 and there's an election somewhere on the continent where like suddenly it becomes a bad idea for them domestically to extend transition at that point we're we're stuffed and we've got a cliff edge just after Christmas as well. So Yeah, I mean, to rely on that hunch that actually they'll probably extend it and extend it because that's what they do and that's the practical thing to do seems a little bit risky to me. Um, And also, of course, the UK didn't really want, didn't get what they really wanted out of it, which was to have a transition period up until March 2021, because they optimistically think that those extra months would give them a little bit more leeway. Yeah, those precious three months. No no one has, no one really makes plans in January, do they? So you can really get your head (laughs) down and sort out your free trader agreements. (laughs) Yeah. And and of course, David Davis didn't even think that a transition period at all was necessary back in 2016. He thought that they could just do it in the Article 50 period, didn't he? So they clearly don't really know. Do you think it's possible that we end up in sort of transition basically forever? And we just kind of, we, we end up with the sort of Norway option by default, where we're still in the economic structures. We're not in the political ones anymore. We don't get any say over rules, really, except for the ones where we, like, presumably, actually, we do get a little bit of say because we are still a big economy and so on. You can't just totally ignore Britain. Mm. But, you know, there is kind of no formal mechanism to give us that say anymore, as there is at the moment with the commission and the parliament and so on. And maybe we just kind of, like, end up there forever where we're not really part of the whole ever closer union thing Mm. but sort of the ghost at the feast kind of thing well yeah i mean like basically like there is a logic in that i mean i I actually i personally as as you know anyone who's ever like read any of my my sentences will probably have noticed i'm (laughs) I'm generally in favor of remaining in the european (laughs) union but i think i can certainly see the logic in like britain being in that sort of outer circle of countries where we're kind of not 
at the core of Europe because that's sort of where our politics is. So do you think that that would, that would happen by virtue of just having a, a never-ending transition period? Because I can't imagine that working politically. That's the sort of Eurosceptics nightmare scenario. Isn't yeah, it? I think we'd have to sort of stumble into it like that, mm. where it sort of becomes, we, we sort of end up in, in EFTA really by default almost, a sort of like, you know, a giant Norway yeah. But yeah, I mean, politically, it's it's difficult, but it's probably, you know, every option is politically difficult, right? I mean, like, it's kind of whatever fudge will get you through the next six months is, is the entire argument around Brexit. It's just like surviving till, yeah. <laughs> till, till the next big thing. So I could kind of see that being where we end. But, you know, as, we, as we've said, it's possible that we it doesn't happen like that and we tumble out in 2020 and everything's terrible. So... Trust you to end on a pessimistic note, John. I'm, I'm, I'm very cheerful. <laughs> a lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. <laughs> Now I'm joined by Francisco Cantu, a former U.S. Border Patrol agent who's written a book about his experience of working on the U.S.-Mexico border for four years called The Line Becomes a River. Um, and that's out this month and it's published by Bodley Head. And thank you for joining us um, on the New Statesman podcast. So you wrote this book about your experience of the border and also about how you felt about doing that kind of work. So first of all, why did you go into that kind of work? You know, I I joined uh, the Border Patrol as like a 23-year-old, uh, fresh out of college uh, from the university. And you know, I had studied immigration and border issues at the university. And, you know, I, I grew up in the Southwest, United States, close to the border. And, you know, during my studies, I began to feel that a lot of the book learning I was doing felt quite disconnected from a lot of the realities that I knew of the landscape and the culture of the U.S.-Mexico border. And so I looked at uh, the Border Patrol as sort of like an opportunity to extend my education. I thought that by doing that work, I would maybe be exposed to, you know, answers to all these questions that were swirling around in my mind. I think like a lot of the same questions that we have right now about immigration policy and border enforcement. And I thought that, you know, maybe having this inside perspective would, would give me, um, you know, like a bag of secret answers that had eluded uh, everyone else because they hadn't actually spent the time. So I was, you know, looking for answers. I thought I would maybe become like a amazing policymaker or immigration lawyer afterwards, but uh, that's not how it turned out. And your mother, who is the daughter of a Mexican immigrant, she was quite apprehensive about your, your career choice, wasn't she? Yeah, I think, you know, quite frankly, my mother was horrified uh, by that decision. And, you know, I think as any mother would be, she was concerned for my safety. But I think she was she was also concerned for sort of the health of of my soul. And, and I think, you know, she she had an inkling of 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 what that job would would ask of me and what it would expose me to. And um she saw that that it was something that could really make me numb to violence. Like she saw that, you know, much, much earlier than I did. 
And you do have some shocking experiences that you write about. You see dead bodies and also you describe fellow border guards urinating on 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 migrant supplies and, and how you slash the water bottles and, and get rid of their supplies. And you feel so guilty that you have these these dreams, these nightmares. Did you feel like you were turning into a bad person when you were doing this job? So one of the central questions, I think, of, of the book um, and one of the central questions I had when I started looking back at, at my time and what I had participated in is sort of to what extent when an individual steps into an institution, to, to what extent can they remain separate from the work that they're doing, uh, from the work that that institution is doing? And so, you know, I, I sort of naively thought when I stepped into the Border Patrol that I, you know, that I would be able to, like, observe these things. And, you know, I had, a, as a young, naive, uh, fresh graduate from college, I had, you know, I thought a very monolithic understanding of who I was in my moral code. And, you know, I thought that I would be able to sort of be a force for good within the agency and and not participate in the bad things, but observe them and, and use that knowledge. But I think I was alarmed at how quickly a lot of those questions and concerns were sort of put aside. And so I think that, you know, it almost doesn't matter whether or not I uh, when I look back at it now, it almost doesn't matter whether or not I participated in, you know, um, those actions. I think that there's a broader culture of destruction within the agency that that I see now looking back on it. I think that there's a, a sort of like Wild West mentality to this uh, work that I think is really damaging um, and, and encourages that sort of those sorts of actions from what you saw in your experience you were there for four years do you think that the public um sort of understanding in the u.s of what goes on at the border is is sort of different from what you saw you know it's 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 funny so for example um the example that you give of border patrol agents uh slashing water bottles or destroying water that's been left in in the in the desert by humanitarian groups you know this is something that People in the you know humanitarian groups and human rights groups that are active in in the border region have known for a long time, and uh, it's something that you know like border patrol agents. Uh, if they're not doing that, they know that other agents do it. Maybe and they you know they they hear about it. It's against policy, but it's sort of like you know there's like this culture of permissiveness that allows for it. And so you know that's an example of something that for the people who are close to the issue, like they know that that's been going on. Um, and just recently in the United States, uh, a month ago, or maybe six weeks ago now, a video was released that shows, um, you know, irrefutable footage of, of Border Patrol agents sort of destroying um, water left in the desert. And I think it caused a lot of outrage, as it should, and it made a lot of rounds on social media, as it should. And I think that was really like the first time that I've seen like the, you know, the entire nation become kind of like outraged at this, but it's something we've known has been happening for a long time. So I think like that's what is important about this moment because, you know, the border patrol response has always been, it's a few bad apples. It's, it's against policy, but the, the policy almost doesn't matter if the culture of the agency permits it. And so, you know, I think 
sustained outrage from the populace is what's necessary to force that culture to change. And so I think it's a it's an important moment because of that. And do you have any optimism that the culture will change? What with Donald Trump in the White House calling Mexican migrants rapists and criminals and trying to build the beautiful wall that he described during his campaign? I don't have a lot of hope that that at least in this moment that the that the culture um, is on any sort of track towards changing for the better. Um, in a way, I see th- things getting worse before they get better. It's strange because when I was in college, uh, ten more than more than ten years ago, um, we were having another version of this debate. Like immigration was in the news. You know, there was actually a lot of talk about building a wall back then in two thousand five and two thousand six. And our Congress passed a, a build the wall bill, and they passed a bill to hire a whole bunch of new border patrol agents. And these are the same solutions that are being suggested now. But of course. You know, the the Border Patrol grew to its largest level ever, and we constructed more than 700 miles of fencing. And what we have seen every time that's happened is that people are pushed into more and more remote parts of the desert in order to cross. Um, They're risking their lives in greater numbers. So last year, for example, although border crossings fell to their lowest level in 14 years, and that was something that the administration bragged a lot about, uh, border deaths actually increased by something like 44%, according to a new UN report. And so although less people are crossing the border, it's becoming more dangerous. I don't see that getting any better because we've just had a long debate about, you know, dreamers in our country. Um, we It looked for a few weeks like there might be some sort of immigration reform bill passing through Congress, but that reform that was being talked about looked the same as it has always looked. I didn't, you know, there was no discussion about a humanitarian crisis, about hundreds of people dying in the desert every year, about an end to a policy of enforcement through deterrence. So I don't see that getting any better, um, but it's really up to, you know, voters and citizens. Yeah, this policy of deterrence, you write a lot about in the book because you you write how migrants are, are essentially forced into life-threatening situations. What would you say would be a better approach? What's your alternative? Part of what has sort of like drawn me to become a writer um, is that, you know, those answers I mentioned looking for earlier, um, you know, that sort of motivated me to join the Border Patrol, I never found those answers. Like I left um, that job, you know, feeling quite defeated, like feeling that I only had more questions than I had joined with. And, and, I, and I left really feeling that the border was was bigger and more incomprehensible and overwhelming than it than it had even seemed to me when I first stepped into that job. And so uh, that's a long way of saying that I don't really have an answer. Like, I don't think that there is a policy answer that is just waiting to be enacted. Um, I do think that we have had guest worker programs um, that have worked in the past. Um, I do think that we as a country sort of owe, um, um, we have a moral obligation to people who have made their lives in the United States, who have um, children in the United States, family in the United States. I mean, for many years, you know, there has been kind of one hand 
like the the economic policy beckoning these people to come and another hand like our our politics sort of pushing them away and i think that you know you can't just turn your back on all those people that have been part of your country for that long yeah and you do in the book um suggest a sort of small practical change which would be for more border guards to have better spanish because obviously you could speak spanish to the people who you came across and i wondered how how that made you feel actually that connection because there is a conversation you have with one person you meet with his pregnant wife who says like a brother could you just could you just let us pass like a brother and did you ever feel like you're almost betraying your heritage yeah you know that um I get that question a lot. And I think um, at the time, you know, it, it didn't, I never really felt like that. I mean, you know, you, <laughs> and I think that's by design because, you know, you step into the Border Patrol Academy and the training is really designed um, as is much military and law enforcement training to sort of break down your idea of, of who you are as an individual and rebuild you in the image of a law enforcement agent. And so for me in that moment, it was easy to say, you know, this is my job and you know, you know, it's my job and I can't do that. But what is interesting, I think, is that, you know, something about that interaction caused me to go home and and to write it down. Um, a lot of what's in the first part of the book, a lot of these interactions were are really just like lifted straight from a, a journal that I kept during those years. And um, when I first began thinking about doing writing stemming from that time, um, the first thing I did was was go to those journals and, you know, take it from the page and put it into a computer document. And that was the first time that I saw all of these interactions in one place, like laid out before me. And that um, and like the weight of of those interactions of like one encounter after another, after another, after another with with these people who, you know, are fleeing violence or attempting to reunite with their family or um, just coming to work and like quite literally saying, can we work while we wait in the station? Yeah. Like I had one man ask me if he could take out the trash while he was waiting for the bus to come get him or clean the countertops. Yeah, so that that's what made the biggest impression on me. I think one of the main messages of the book is these people are going to try and make this journey anyway. Whatever barrier you put up, whatever policy you have, they're going to come. First of all, why? And second of all, is that the theme? Is that the theme of sort of today? Because of the refugee crisis, people think, oh, well, if we don't rescue them when when they're drowning in the sea, they won't come, but they still come. I mean, I think if there's like one essential lesson for like any citizen, any politician or policymaker it is that no matter what version of hell we put at our borders, um, people will endure that to get over to the other side. I mean, you know, if you are fleeing certain death in the village that you that you came from, or you're separated from, you know, your children and and your family values, everything that you've ever learned says that, you know, no matter what, you have to be part of your children's lives. Like nothing... Um, will stop you. And and also nothing should. I mean, I think any of us in the position that these people are in would do the same. And, you know, I've talked to many Border Patrol agents who say that. They're like, you know, yeah, I, I signed up to do this job, but if I was in that position, I'd be doing the same thing. And so what I think the question then becomes like not how to make our border more 
impenetrable or quite frankly, like hellacious, the question then becomes, you know, how do we rethink political, economic and immigration policy in a way that brings some of this out into the open in a way that doesn't, um, you know, promote uh, disorder and in in these countries that are because you know a lot of these countries in central america for example um they have arrived at the current political situation because of you know old u.s policies or, or meddling from decades before and um yeah i think that economic development in those countries could be a lot better use of our money than spending billions of dollars on a wall for example have you found since um, Trump was elected that attitudes towards Mexican immigrants have has cha- have changed at all? I, I think what you see is that it's more out in the open. Um, you know, I think I don't know if attitudes have shifted, but I think that attitudes that might have been sort of covered up or not vocalized before are just laid bare because you have you know the you know our supposed leader espousing these ideas quite openly and and quite almost seemingly joyfully. And so, but I think that, that we have long um, dehumanized migrants with our rhetoric in the United States and globally. I mean, when you, when you read headlines about immigration, you read about, you know, a flood of migrants or a wave of immigration um, or an uptick as if, you know, these people's lives are a line that can be plotted on a graph. And I think that language encourages us to think of migrants as part of this like indistinguishable mass of people where one is indifferent from the next. Um, and so we don't conceive of their individual lives um, and we don't mourn their deaths when they die in the desert. We don't even read about that in, in our country. Um, and so I think, you know, we, we have to push back against rhetoric that encourages that kind of thinking. Um, and I think we, you know, we have to look at, at each individual life that, that we're talking about here. Yeah, because the good thing about the journals that you keep that you've that you've translated into your book are um, that there are human stories there, which we don't see in lots of the press coverage of, say, um, sort of refugees coming from the Middle East or from Africa um, or even sort of um, European migrants coming to work in the UK. Lots of that language that you mentioned, like swarms and floods the UK papers have used that language for years and it's only got worse since the vote to leave the European Union. And um, lots of people would rather have sort of harder borders that that aren't so fluid for European migrants here. And I don't know whether you think sort of, do you despair at the sort of global situation that we've got ourselves in regarding people who are who are moving countries? I, I, I honestly do despair. I mean, I think, you know, what what's happened in the last two years even, is that that rhetoric has been ratcheted up even more. Um, so, you know, we've long referred to to the undocumented migrant as illegal, as if their very presence and existence um, should not be. And, um, you know, but now there's this move to, you know, our president quite often, uh, you know, conflates your average migrant with like an MS-13 gang member. Um, and I think, even more alarming is this move in recent years um, to sort of criminalize the refugee, to call into question um, the status of, of, or how we think 
and talk about refugees. I mean, I remember growing up, like refugees seemed like this almost like sacred term. Like if you hear that term, you know that that these are the most vulnerable people that that we owe um, protection to. And I think we've seen that term very intentionally dragged through the mud by our politicians um, in in hopes to cast the refugee as as people to be feared um, and to be and to be pushed away. And I think that that's um, it's unforgivable, really. And and I think that it takes a lot of work to to repair that damage that we do with our rhetoric. And you said that you didn't end up in a sort of immigration policy job after your work as a border guard. Um, so what's next? Are you still looking for those answers that you were seeking all those years ago in the Arizona desert? Well, I can say that, you know, coming to to life as a as a writer has seemed like a much more honest way of, of grappling with these questions than, than anything I've done in the past. Um, I think um, it allows you the space to ask questions and to you know, deposit those questions on onto the reader and to encourage readers to ask more questions and better questions. Um, I also do work as a translator from Spanish into English. Um, and, and, you know, part of why that feels important to me is that I think, you know, some of the most important voices that we need to be listening to are the voices of, of those on the other side of the border or the voices of, of people who, um, you know, are not writing in English or the people who are living in the margins of our society and, and risking their lives across the border. And, you know, I also do work part-time as, as a teacher um, and coordinating curriculum that encourages students to uh, become involved with, with advocacy groups um, along the border. And so, yeah, I mean, I think what's most important is is personally engaging with with this issue. I think so many of us whether we realize it or not, we know people that are touched by this issue. We know people who might be undocumented or they might be refugees or they're, you know, our kids go to school with their kids. Um, and I think, you know, it doesn't take much to to open up and to listen to those people. Thank you so much. Thanks for coming in. The book, The Line Becomes a River, is out now and it's published by Bodley Head. And now we're doing a segment that we call You Ask Us. Now you'll not recognize um, my voice saying You Ask Us this week because George is joining us again, filling in, filling in for me, who is filling in for Stephen. Thank you for coming on, George. One of the good questions that we received from a listener this week was, why is the convention, the Westminster Convention, not to name politician spokespeople when you're quoting them? Now, the context of this is that Jeremy Corbyn's spokesman, Seamus Milne, was actually named in a story um, about the Russian spy row earlier this week. I think last week, actually, when he was talking about the problematic nature of British intelligence, talking about the Iraq war dodgy dossier and the weapons of mass destruction. Um, and this turned into a big controversial story. So why is it that we don't usually name people when they say things so the, the convention scenes. at Westminster for centuries actually has been that when uh, spokespeople of politicians, uh, their advisors uh, speak to journalists, they are not identified by name. And I think the view is that they are essentially representing their their boss, uh, so adumbrating their views, and that to name them makes them an individual. And advisors like to stay in the shadows, uh, not become the story 
And this anonymity also means that they can tell journalists, pass on information um, that perhaps would be harder to do so if they could be readily identified. Okay, because one of the arguments is that this is a bit of a meaningless system now because everyone knows the code. So if you talk about a, a spokesperson for the leader of the opposition, you know who that is. Or at least if you work in Westminster, you know the person who's named. Um, and so do you think these are slightly archaic, these, these rules now? I don't think so. I think the system is becoming harder to maintain in an age of social media, for instance. And often advisors, spokespeople now are on social media themselves, which actually gives them more of a personality and more of a, of a presence. But I think the particular difficulty with Seamus Milne's had is that he was well known as a Guardian commentator, a uh, left-wing voice, before he took the job with with Jeremy Corbyn, whereas other spokespeople spend their spend their career working through the party and will not be public figures in the way that uh, Seamus Milne was. And so I think when he started speaking to journalists, some still treated him as if he was writing a Guardian column almost. And I know he found that very frustrating because, as we've discussed, the convention is that you're not named whoever you are, however prominent you may be, um, it applied to Alistair Campbell too, yeah. um, and 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 so on. And then the other difficulty Milne faces is that a lot of the lobby um, who work on 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 right wing newspapers will object vehemently to his views yeah. on issues such as such as Russia, on issues such as uh, nuclear weapons, and so on. And I think the case with this briefing was that some journalists objected to what he was saying so much that they thought there was a public interest in him being named. The oddity, though, is that, of course, Seamus Milne was then named by the Press Association, which is very much very straight reporting, yeah. and it's not quite clear how that happened because it was a it was a, a, a genuine breach of convention, particularly for the Press Association. Yeah, so that convention fell away because people were so sort of shocked by Seamus Milne's sort of in in Westminster's view, unorthodox briefing. And then it became the sort of norm for people to report it that way. Yes. Um, and it's worth saying that the view then became that it wasn't really what Jeremy Corbyn thought about Russia that was causing political problems. It was what um, Seamus Milne thought. And almost Milne became, became the story. Milne was being criticised by Labour MPs such mm. as Chukwamuna, Mike Gapes, John Woodcock. But actually, I think that's getting it the, the wrong way around. The reason Jeremy Corbyn hired Seamus Milne is because he is a, a commentator, um, an aide now, who shares his worldview. They had very similar views on, on Russia, on Western foreign policy. And so actually, I think in most cases, sh what Seamus Milne thinks is also what, what Jeremy Corbyn thinks. Yeah. So I don't think you do get instances where a political advisor will freelance, essentially, mm. that they will put across their own view rather than conveying their boss's view. In this case, I think it's safe to say Jeremy Corbyn and Seamus Milne are very much on the same page. Okay, yeah, because people love to think of a sort of shadowy puppet master behind the scenes controlling what the leader is saying. I think Alistair Campbell had a, almost a yes. similar reputation. And he he actually was the person, I was reading the history of lobby briefings, and he was the person who changed the wording for, for describing a prime minister's spokesperson to the prime minister's official spokesman. It used to be Downing Street sources, which was far more vague. So yes. he was the one who made these lobby briefings even less anonymous, if you like. Yes. And they used to be completely secret. You weren't even allowed to report that they happened. Yes. So why don't you tell us now what actually happens? How do they work? Yes, so um, twice a day, uh, once at 11 and then again in, in the afternoon, 
Um, the Prime Minister's spokesman, Will, who's currently uh, James Slack, who holds, hosts most of them, formerly uh, of the Daily Mail, uh, will brief journalists on uh, the main activities of the day, um, what the Prime Minister and, and, and the Cabinet are up to, and then take questions. Um, essentially, the aim is their uh, lobby journalists compete to try and get the spokesman to say something that they don't want to say. And sometimes they succeed. <laughs> right. And sometimes and sometimes they'll they'll brief journalists about something which is embargoed and and sometimes that those 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 ones can be quite dramatic but at most of the time it's a fairly run of the mill description of what the government's up to that day right okay and and the opposition do this do the same do they so the opposition they don't have um formal uh lobby briefings every day in the way that the the government do but uh the opposition will normally brief journalists after prime minister's questions which is where uh, the now infamous Seamus Milne briefing took place uh, sometimes after when Jeremy Corbyn's appearing at the uh, Parliamentary Labour Party meeting, um, which takes place in committee room 14 in a corridor in the House of Commons. At the end, Seamus Milne or, or, or some of Jeremy Corbyn's other advisors will give journalists an account of what happened and sometimes MPs will then pop up and give uh, give them a rather different account. <laughs> right. And then there's the, so it's up to you to then uh, work out whose who's account is most accurate. And then, of course, um, at the party conferences, as you'd expect, there'll, there'll often be a pre-speech briefing um, and, then a, and then a post-speech um, briefing. But it's an interesting question as to how long this, this, this convention can last, because I'm reminded of uh, Gavin Bauer, who's, who's Theresa May's um, chief of staff. And I once tweeted during Prime Minister's questions that there were three big tests coming up for, for Theresa May. And one was the um, EU Council. Uh, one was the budget and whether that uh, would, would fall apart as it had done on previous occasions. And the other was the Damien Green inquiry. And he tweeted in response, only three? <laughs> which was an unusual an unusual joke for for a, a chief of staff to make on twitter and it's quite unusual for a prime minister's chief of staff to be on social media at all and of course gavin barwell was a, a former mp and is suspected by some are still having political ambitions and clearly staying on social media and keeping active is one way to keep your profile high but i do wonder if in the age of social media when when particularly those with political views are often very active on social media how happy they will be to retreat to the shadows of uh of an advisory where of an advisory role where you're not expected to be a public facing figure and uh at all costs you should avoid becoming the story thank you very much george thank you You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Anoush Shekelian, and my co-hosts, John Elledge and George Eaton. We're recorded by India Bork and produced by Caroline Crampton. And our music is Devil with the Devil by the Underscore Orchestra. Subscribe to the New Statesman podcast in your podcast app or go to newstatesman.com forward slash podcast, where you can also find our pop culture podcast, Seriously, Skylines, which is all about cities, and The Back Half, which discusses our arts and books pages. 
Hello, Freddie here. I want to tell you about a new way you can support the New Statesman's independent journalism. Every morning I send out Morning Call, our daily newsletter covering everything you need to know about British politics. It's free to sign up, plus for just £3 a month, you'll get a recommended daily piece of ours sent to you in full, plus exclusive polling analysis from Ben Walker, a weekly update from Will Dunn, and our featured piece on Sundays. If you enjoy this podcast, you'll love Morning Call. Head to morningcall.substack.com and subscribe now. Trust in politics is broken. So can we get UK politics working again? That was the last time we were happy. 2012. I'm Beth Rigby, Sky's political editor. Join me every week with Labour's Jess Phillips and Conservative peer Ruth Davidson for some electoral dysfunction. This idea of nuance has completely left politics. Together we'll focus on the policies that could deliver political satisfaction. Follow electoral dysfunction wherever you get your podcasts.